0: things
1: that i've seen is it my life or just something i dream resume now one a summing up summary two a brief written account of personal educational and professional qualifications and experience in January of 1984, a huge deal came for me in the form of Phoenix, The Untold Story number 1. At $2, it cost nearly four times as much as a normal comic, but was also at least twice the size. It had a rigid, glossy cover and heavy stock interior pages that were brighter and more colorful than anything on the stands. Only Marvel fanfare had higher quality printing, but I always found that title to be terribly garish, since colorists seemed to have difficulty adapting to the subtler palette requirements. The art by John Byrne and Terry Austin was glorious, rendering a variety of environments in an epic space battle. Chris Claremont's story was all about scope and gravitas no wonder this dark phoenix saga was so revered i read it in a recliner a rare luxury at the apartment of a friend of the family even though thunderbirds or go is playing on the cable television in the background the marionettes couldn't hold a candle to this there was a lengthy roundtable interview at the back of the book explaining how the project came to be as well as its impact on the industry and x-men narrative i lapped it all up i probably haven't read the story since i just tossed through the book and relished the nostalgia for the feeling it gave me as a child My spotty following of classic X-Men years later made it clear to me that in spite of the talent working in their prime, there's still no way the printed book could equal my childhood perception of it, so why taint the memory? For the podcast, though, I'll give it another toss. I think this story spoiled me for the Fantastic Four. It opens with narration from The Watcher, who I knew from What If. Then in an iconic two-page splash, the X-Men find themselves on trial before an intergalactic court that included the Shi'ar, the Kree, and the Skrulls. To have matters of that scale rendered by one of the greatest art teams in comics history, How could I then go to the hoary old FF drawn by Paul Ryan or Ron friends? Next follows a series of scenes of X-Men alone or in pairs, reflecting on their feelings about the unintentionally genocidal Jean Grey, corrupted by the cosmic power that had taken possession of her, the Phoenix Force. Could they condemn a loved one and founding member to die? Could they allow a destroyer of worlds to live either? It was a fine introduction to each X-Man's personality and powers under a dramatic circumstance. Also, there was a near-nude scene of Logan displaying an extra hairy example of manhood before an impressionable boy raised until recently exclusively by women. I'm just thankful my childhood wish to also be as hair suit as Robin Williams never came to pass. My shoulders look way better naked, thank you very much. Next begins Jean Grey's trial by combat as the X-Men battle the Shi'ar Imperial Guard. Dave Cockrum's Legion of Superheroes proxies are still arguably more attractive, imaginative, and diverse than the originals. I bought Legion comics for years, and I dare say I may have continued to do so if they looked as good as the Imperial Guard, instead of going for a poor man's United Federation of Planets uniformity in the 90s. The published version of Uncanny X-Men number 137 is considerably longer than the untold story. In the famous conclusion, the Dark Phoenix begins to retake Jean, so that the X-Men actually try to kill her themselves. Recognizing the threat she poses, Jean finds an automated laser cannon in the battlefield and performs a proto-suicide by cop, probably because of the influence of the untold story on me. I always found that to be an inadequate end to the Dark Phoenix. In the version of the story rejected by editor-in-chief Jim Shooter, the X-Men are quietly defeated by the Imperial Guard off-panel. Jean is then subjected to a quasi- lobotomy, clinically removing her powers and much of her mind. She begins screaming during this, and her lover Scott Summers reaches out to hold her hand until the process is over. Even though it's clear in the text that Jean survived, the back matter details at length Jean's published demise, so I still read the sequence as her execution. It's so much more heart-wrenching to me than the official story. Also, despite being oft homaged, I think uncanny number 137's cover is far less dramatic and memorable than Phoenix untold told stories finally the inside back cover featured a promo for the Marvel superhero secret wars the original version of the first cover that included Kitty Pride this will be relevant later Frank, I'm going to take a moment to compliment Mike's Amazing World of Comics and then five minutes criticizing the thing I just complimented. Via its much-heralded newsstand feature, I tumbled upon the only online indexing I could find of four mini-comics created from Matchbox's ill-fated Flash Force 2000 line. Without it, I likely would have never covered this life lesson of a line. Diecast Miniature Cars are an international staple toy, and companies like Matchbox were dominant in the overall market up to the 70s. With the emergence of action figures in the 80s, they were surely wounded by having to cede that market share. Inspired by movies like The Road Warrior and Damnation Alley, Matchbox tried to adopt elements of the figure market with Flash Force 2000, billed as, A world where the heroes are the cars, and the cars are the stars. With copy like that, is it any wonder that it flopped hard and is now all but forgotten? The story goes... It's the last chance to save the world from the dreaded Dark Seekers. And it's your chance to collect the most action-packed vehicles and sets ever created. Rampage Rock! Tornado Chopper! Flash Force Base! Dark Seeker Battle Band! Rampagers! Flash Fighters! the heroic leader was a blonde knob named Flash Rider while replacing the eye in a mostly white skin-tight jumpsuit with red highlights. To their credit, there was a strawberry blonde Flash fighter named Sherry who was prominently featured as a combatant, even going solo on one of the covers. Given that this was a licensed product, set in a desolate, post-apocalyptic future of automotive road wars, I'm genuinely surprised they didn't tap Michael Fleischer to write it. I found some preview pages for the second Flash Force 2000 booklet, Bushwhacked by the Battle Van, scanned on Etsy. I'm pretty sure it's the one I had as a kid. There's no credits that I could see, though the layouts looked a bit like Carmine and Fantino. If I had to guess, though, the art most resembled Dennis Cowan, and research would basically confirm that. Even though the mini comics aren't listed at any of the other big indexing sites, DC ran a 14-page story that is. Using the same format as their bonus book program, DC featured the story Driving Force. In November 1984, cover dated issues of Batman the Outsiders, Blue Devil, Detective of Comics, Green Lantern, Superman Tales of the Legion of Superheroes and World's Finest Comics sure enough Cowan is credited as full penciler with Sal Trapani on inks over a Robert Lauren Fleming script you can currently get the better part of an entire story's worth of the original art pages on eBay for 36 bucks a piece credited solely to Trapani now we get to my criticism see Mike's Amazing World lists the four booklets as if they were released on a monthly schedule at the beginning of 1984 when they were packaged with toys that would have been released more or less simultaneously as a single assortment the DC preview story appeared in books released in August and that late year timing is important to my story I was aware that my family had modest means, so I tended to stay focused on the two great pleasures of my young life, comic books and action figures. I remember having three rideable items as a wee lad, an inchworm, a jaguar-themed big wheel from my father, and one particularly ostentatious Christmas, a police motorcycle with lights and siren. Those were my big ticket items. I didn't even learn to ride a two-wheeler until I was a tween, and my first bike was a hand-me-down. I had a couple of toy rifles and a few handguns, but never anything elaborate that actually fired anything. I did get a second-hand Darth Vader figure-carrying case, and on my last big Christmas in 1983, I got Point Dread and the Talon Fighter from Masters of the Universe. I want to say I got Castle Greyskull as well, along with a small batch of Black Star figures. So that was a very good year ahead of the Reagan layoffs. I'm fuzzy on Grayskull because, like most everything else I mentioned, it wouldn't have survived the great storage unit default of 1984. I don't have any especially strong memories of Grayskull, and my brother had one when we started hanging out together on weekends a few years later. So I might be thinking I had my own when maybe I really didn't. Anyway, the point is that pricey toys were uncommon in my household. What I could reasonably expect for being a good boy was an action figure every few weeks when we went to a department store or the mall and a comic book when we got to the convenience store. On one trip to Kmart, they had the new Flash Force 2000 toys. Like a lot of things you'd assume little boys would like, I didn't care about cars. One of the last Hot Wheels-type items I got was a 70s Incredible Hulk van, where I spent more time looking through a peephole at the back with a tiny jade giant image than I did spinning the wheels. I am, however, an absolute sucker for novelty. The gimmick of Flash Force was that they used little plastic blasting caps, the kind you'd load into toy revolvers, to launch the cars and I burned a test one out. Plus you know it came with a mini comic and a thinly constructed but familiar theme. I selected my car and proceeded to request it from my parents who refused me. Now again I was typically a fairly quiet and mature child who expected little but we had an arrangement you see and I lacked the critical thinking skills to conceive of why the adults were suddenly reneging. I didn't have much use for religion or a strong conception of the constitution but I had been told to get a toy and then not allowed a toy. My worldview was entirely shook and I must confess I handled it so poorly that my mother escorted me to the parking lot. There she told me not to say anything, but seeing my interest, my grandmother had just bought the white Flash Force Corvette for my upcoming Christmas present. I was still put out by the need to wait, but understood. I was, and remained eternally embarrassed by my outburst. Obviously a child's perception of the passage of time is unreliable, but it doesn't feel in retrospect like I waited any sort of eternity for the vehicle. As predicted, Momma presented me with my promised Flash Force 2000 car, I loaded the cap, I triggered it with the torque shifter spring-loaded firing mechanism, and nothing happened. Again and again the mechanical or pilot failure, I neither know nor especially care. I probably tried for five minutes or so, got bored and frustrated, then moved on to other toys. Surely I barely even touched the thing again. Hopefully my swift lack of interest escaped my mom all. The whole scene certainly disappointed me in myself, then as now, nearly four decades on, and surely for however much time I have remaining. But anyway, I'm pretty confident that there were no Flash Force 2000 mini-comics in the first quarter of 1984, so there's my formal request that Mike's Amazing World of Comics an adjustment to the newsstand chronology.
0: I tell you I'm all right now, but last week I was in rough shape. I don't get a break with nothing. I played hide and seek when I was three. No respect, no respect. Why they would not even look for me. No respect, no respect. I was an ugly kid. I never had fun. No respect, no respect. They took me to a dog show and I won. No respect, no respect. When I was born, I brought no joy No respect, no respect My old man said he wanted a boy No respect, no respect I was an ugly kid, always alone No respect, no respect Halloween, I had a trick-or-treat over the phone No respect, no respect Friends don't call, my phone don't ring I don't get a break with anything What's the matter, Rodney? Ah, death, where is my sting? It's just rap and riding Ain't that too tight, no, no Get out of sight. It's just rapping riding Make no mistake, poor old rapping Rodney can't get a break.
1: Speaking Thinking of not really free comics, I spent hours trying to find where I would have written about American Honda Presents Supergirl number one before now, and I still can't believe I came up empty-handed. I'm not sure if this one came out of a thrift store DIY three-pack or my friend's grocery sack of comics from 88, but I suspect the former, since it got to deteriorate over the years of abuse before finally disappearing. Producing cooperation with the U.S. Department of Transportation's National Safety Belt campaign, this was a nice companion to the Teen Titans Drug Prevention Comics. It was also a nice companion to Red Asphalt and other traumatizing traffic safety films. Linda Danvers is dating a dude who was hit by a drunk driver while traveling with his kid's sister and not wearing a seatbelt. Superman loans his cousin a Kryptonian device that allows her to enter the dude's subconscious as he's been knocked into a coma. He fears for his sister's life and plays out multiple fantasy versions of the accident as he processes his grief and concern. The story was plotted by committee and scripted by Andy Helfer, really leaning into a scared straight aesthetic. It's very much delivered through the art of Angelo Torres, expressive yet realistic in the manner of a Mort Drucker, but with an eerie quality of emotional blankness along the lines of an Alfredo Alcala. All the diagrams of how long it takes for a car at high speed to fully brake, and how far your limp body will be flung through a windshield and helplessly toward a crushing impact far from the vehicle, surely contributed to that unease. Seat belts were not universal back then, and I often had to make do without one. But when given the option, I have always said yes. When I was a young child, my mom once braked hard and sent my head crashing into the dashboard. No lasting harm was done, but between that and this comic, I certainly had a reinforcement of that personal preference. The maid of mine had very little media representation back then, essentially going straight to feature film as a spin-off of the Salkins' Superman motion picture. I think I knew of Supergirl from House Ads and the DC Sampler, but this giveaway is probably the first proper story I read of hers. A lot of old-time fans were up in arms about the dark, supernatural revision of Supergirl seen in her most successful ongoing series, produced in the late 90s under writer Peter David. I wonder if I was perhaps primed for that revision by Honda and the DOT. This was actually the first of two Supergirl specials from Honda, the other one being a far more goofy Humpty Dumpty riff, I found it in a quarter box around 1989. Another reason I'm pretty sure I got the first one closer to 1984, since I already had a sense of nostalgia toward it. I did not ultimately buy it, though. As for the movie, I caught it on television between the two comics. There's stuff in there I like, but I don't watch it on purpose without a cause. Did
0: I say I wouldn't be hurt If our love just didn't work Did I say said yeah. good
1: I didn't buy Uncanny X-Men number 180, where Kitty finally confronted Aurora over her shocking makeover as a mohawked punk, but I did read my friend's copy not as monumental as some others this month, but truly of great inspiration, was the official handbook of the Marvel Universe number 15. It had everyone worth knowing on a cover by John Byrne. Most importantly, the excellent renditions of Captain America and Wolverine. This was the one with the schematics of all the weapons and vehicles. I doubt I read many entries, but I sure stared at those designs. There were official S.H.I.E.L.D. and Avengers membership cards on the inside back cover, which I dutifully cut loose and filled out with my vitals. I was completely immersed in this fond of information, and though this was the last issue of the first volume, I would absolutely be waiting for the next one. When I started doing this show, it was... YouTube videos and I figured it'd just be something I'd plug in until I had time to work on something more involved so I was shooting for like five, ten minutes. Since the show doesn't come out as regularly as I had intended for it to, that seems a bit too short but recent episodes have gotten up into the half hour range and that feels a little long because it's just me I try to edit the show pretty tightly and of course I do a lot of research into music and the comics themselves it doesn't come together as quickly as you know I might have liked. It seems like about 20 minutes or so is a good number and since we're coming a little short, I think now might be a good time to cast an eye backward, talk about television, specifically the 1982-83 TV season, without letting things spiral out of control into unusable recordings, sort of things that would make me have like a two-year gap in producing episodes. I thought I'd offer a quick rundown of the viewing habits myself and my mother and grandmother when we all lived together.
0: The strange, the bizarre, be unexpected. These are the kinds of subjects a man named Robert L. Ripley challenged us to believe it
1: or not. Sunday nights at 6 central, I watched Ripley's Believe It or Not on my own. Jack Palance's distinctive speech pattern was perfect for a show about the strange and unusual, and I've been a fan of his ever since. I think my mother preferred Voyagers, because she liked fantasy series and the show's handsome lead was her type. John Eric Hexham played a time traveler who teamed up with a tween boy for adventures. A couple years later, the actor accidentally killed himself with a prop gun fired at close range to his head, and he's who I thought of first when I heard Brandon Lee had died on the set of The Crow. Taught me a lesson in gun safety, for sure. My grandmother worked in a hospital cafeteria on a serving line and would sometimes bring home the only eclairs I ever truly loved. They were slightly soggy and soft, which I'm sure would be awful to most people. That's the only way I like them. I've never been able to buy them that way, and so haven't really enjoyed the things in 40 years. Anyway, my all liked doctor shows, and Trevor John M.D. was probably her favorite. It was this odd spin-off of M.A.S.H. that was actually just like a full-on drama with one character in relation and set in modern times. Also, Gregory Harrison, I believe, was in that, and he was quite the heartthrob of the time. We caught the Jeffersons and one day at a time fairly regularly, but I think that's more of a syndication deal than first run, because we most often saw one of the Sunday night movies on the broadcast networks. Back before VCRs, the only way to see a relatively recent motion picture at home was on the Sunday night movie. <laughs> On Mondays, my grandmother loved the family western Little House on the Prairie, and anything with Michael Landon in it. Then my mother would get her Alice and One Day at a Time. That would lead into Cagney and Lacey, but I wasn't much for police procedurals, so I'd usually turn in early or find something else to do until 10. days were for the 1950s set Happy Days and Laverne and Shirley, which are still with me enough that I just the other day insulted a guy by comparing him to Squiggy. While I liked both shows, the A-Team also started that season, so I'd to NBC when I could get control of the TV. Otherwise, ABC would continue to rain the rest of the night. My mom would check out After Three's Company, so hard to heart about an affluent husband and wife team of amateur mystery investigators was a show I shared with my mom all.
0: This is my boss. Jonathan Hart, a self-made millionaire, was quite a guy. This is Mrs. H. She's gorgeous. She's one lady who knows how to take care of herself. By the way, my name is Max. I take care of both of them, which ain't easy. Because when they met, it was Murder.
1: wednesday night favorite was the stuntman investigator show the fall guy so i'm glad my mom was up for it too the price i paid for that was dynasty but I could roll with all the trashy rich people's drama given how much time she spent with daytime soaps i don't think mama was into dynasty so i'd sometimes stay with her for an episode of quincy me i may be one of the only people who had trouble accepting jack cluckman as a sports writer on the odd couple reruns since i knew him first as a medical examiner oh and the facts of life was in there somewhere too Hungry as it was for superhero shows, The Greatest American Hero never took it seriously enough for my taste. That's for the best, since it was love at first sight between my mom and Magnum P.I. Plus, it was one of my favorites, too. It may have helped my uncle also lived in Hawaii. But I think it was mostly Tom Selleck and his top-ranking mustache. I mean, we saw High Road to China and Lasseter theatrically. CBS ruled that night, because we'd roll into the mismatched Private Investigator Brothers show, Simon & Simon, and then I'd be half-watching the soap Knots Landing
0: try this for a deep, dark secret. The great detective Remington Steele? He doesn't exist. I invented him. Follow. I always loved excitement. So I studied, and apprenticed, and put my name on an office. But absolutely nobody knocked down my door. A female private investigator seemed so feminine. So I invented a superior. A decidedly masculine superior. Suddenly there were cases around the block. It was working like a charm until the day he walked in with his blue eyes and mysterious past. And before I knew it, he assumed Remington Steele's identity. Now I do the work and he takes the bows. It's a dangerous way to live, but as long as people buy it, I can get the job done. We never mix business with pleasure. Well, almost never don't even know his real name
1: Even for kids, Friday was the night you could stay out well after dark, plus Dukes of Hazard was on its last legs by then, so I usually wasn't glued to the TV, at least not in the earlier part of the evening, though I did like Benson when I caught it. I might see the tail end of Dallas, which sometimes rolled into the similarly dynastic Falcon Crest, but on a good week I'd catch Remington Steele instead. I had a bit of a thing for Stephanie Zimbalist, and even though this was yet another private detective show, we all saw in Pierce Brosnan the same qualities as the producers of James Bond. <laughs> When my mother was still dating, including my future stepfather, she was often out on Saturday nights. The neighborhood kids would most likely be played out by sundown, so I tended to be around for Bill Shatner as a beat cop on TJ Hooker. It was a tough night on Mama, because we were all Carol Burnett fans, and Mama's family was on. However, ABC's Triple Threat continued into the Love Boat and Fantasy Island, so me and my Mama's night tended to be stationary on that channel.
0: Islands in the stream, that is what we are.
1: Thanks go out to Adriano, Dr. Ange, Anthony Durso, Between the Pages, Billy at Excelsior73, Chris at Batbooks Books for Beginners, who also wrote thanks, and I do have all of those. Great Comics, Collected Edition, Doc Strange, Ed Moore, Firestorm Fan, Paul Hicks, History of Comics One Film, Iowa's Joe Crawford, Jeffrey Brown, Keechee Baker, Kenny Crayley Jr., King Size Comics Giant Size Fun Podcast, Kirk Spencer Has Had Too Much Benadryl, Christados, The Liquid Awesome, Lisa Franklin, Odell Abner Dracula, QVT Paris, Relatively Geeky, Richard G., Ryan Daly, Seer Wars and Beyond Podcast, Slangward Scott, Sphinx Magoo 2020, Superbound, Tim Price the Podcrasher, Tom Beach, Wonder Woman Warrior for Peace Podcast, Xenozoic Xenophiles, and Doug Zoisha. Between the pages noted, Do not understand why no one publishes in an Indiana Jones comic these days. Firestorm fan wrote and why aren't the older indiana jones comics available on marvel unlimited when disney bought lucasfilm they loaded all the older dark horse star wars comics into mu why not indiana jones some kind of comics legal snafu history of comics on film noted i thought disney bought star wars not lucasfilm or indiana jones none of the any stuff is on disney plus is it and finally anthony durso noted any stuff is still controlled somewhat by the distributor paramount and offered a link to an article about the matter